Local election workers in states around the U.S. tell NPR they have felt unsafe doing their jobs. The threat was specifically that the following week that I would not be alive, and then my dog was poisoned. It's Tuesday, June 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, you'll hear that the submersible that went missing in the Atlantic Sunday has safety features that allow it to rise to the surface if something goes wrong. And some of these, by the way, work even if the power is out and even if everyone on board is passed out. Also, crab and lobster fishing seasons are affected by concerns about whales. The whales can get entangled in the long ropes. A new possible solution? Pop-up fishing gear. And you'll hear about the new CDC director, Dr. Mandy Cohen. It's 401. The news is first. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A five-year federal investigation into Hunter Biden's finances has apparently run its course in the Biden's home state of Delaware. Today, authorities announced that the president's 53-year-old son agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanors of failing to pay his taxes on income in 2017 and 2018. Hunter Biden also struck a deal on a felony gun charge. He avoids jail time. Prominent Republicans are sharply criticizing the plea deal, among them House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who suggests Hunter Biden got off easy. It continues to show the two-tier system in America. If you are the president's leading political opponent, the DOJ tries to literally put you in jail and give you prison time. If you are the president's son, you get a sweetheart deal. Hunter Biden's attorney put out a statement saying the president's son is committed to taking responsibility for actions that took place during a period of turmoil and addiction in his life. An international search continues in earnest this hour in the North Atlantic for a missing submersible called the Titan. The five-member crew of the sub lost communication with the ship on the surface early Sunday, less than two hours into a dive to see the wreckage of the Titanic. As more U.S. states enact restrictions on abortion, some localities are increasing funding for abortion and other services. Here's NPR's Sarah McCammon. In the years since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, at least 15 municipalities and six state governments allocated more than $200 million for contraception, abortion, and support services for people seeking abortion. That's according to new data from the National Institute for Reproductive Health. President Andrea Miller says the high court's decision prompted some states and municipalities to take action. We've seen unrivaled action across states and localities at the municipal level to bolster access to reproductive health care and especially around abortion as a really immediate and direct response. Meanwhile, about a dozen states now have near total abortion bans and several others have implemented significant new restrictions. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's responding to a report that China has plans for a new military training facility in Cuba. NPR's Michelle Kellerman with details. Cuba was one of the many topics that Secretary Blinken says he raised during his two-day trip to China this week. I uh, made very clear that we would have deep concerns about uh, PRC intelligence or military uh, activities in Cuba. The secretary, now in London, says the Biden administration has been closely monitoring China's activities in Cuba and elsewhere. He says the U.S. has made some progress in slowing this down. He didn't provide details. The Wall Street Journal reports that China and Cuba are negotiating a joint military training facility on the island, but says the talks have not concluded. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The Dow closes down nearly 200 points, or roughly half a percent. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Home prices in greater Boston just got more expensive. The median price for a single-family home hit an all-time monthly high in May at $900,000. That's according to the Greater Boston Association of Realtors, which released its latest housing data today. WBUR's Zanenjur in Wemeka reports. If you're looking to buy a home in Greater Boston, you'll face plenty of competition. There just isn't enough housing stock, and the homes that are available get multiple offers. Allison Sosha is the president of the Greater Boston Association of Realtors. This really comes down to a longstanding production issue. We truly need to be able to build more housing so that we can meet the needs and um, the demand, really, of those buyers who are out there and want to call Greater Boston home. Sosha also says homeowners with low mortgage interest rates are less likely to put their house up for sale. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Boston police are investigating a woman accused of posing as a student in several schools in the city. Officials with Boston Public Schools say the woman attended three high schools in the city in the past year. She's accused of using fake names and false identification to enroll and transfer between the schools. District staff discovered the alleged fraud last week. A film festival celebrating people of color around the world kicked off today in Boston. The Roxbury International Film Festival is celebrating its 25th year. Lisa Simmons is its executive director, and she says the festival has grown over time. More and more people are getting into this space, and more and more people are lifting up these voices that have been covered for so long, for lack of a better word because you're not going to see these films in the mainstream media. And it's an incredible opportunity to learn about other worlds and other lives. Film screenings are taking place at the Museum of Fine Arts, Northeastern University, and Hiberian Hall through June 28th. Tonight, the Red Sox play the Twins in Minnesota. Cutter Crawford gets the start for Boston. Some clouds around tonight, some patchy fog, lows in the mid-50s overnight. Tomorrow... For the first day of summer, a mostly cloudy start, then becoming sunny and highs in the upper 60s. Thursday should be partly sunny with highs in the low 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Focus Features with Asteroid City, the new comedy from director Wes Anderson. A junior stargazers convention is disrupted by an alien encounter. Now playing in New York and Los Angeles, in theaters everywhere this Friday. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Donald Trump keeps lying, saying he won the 2020 election. And that has local election officials fearing for their safety. NPR's Chris Arnold has been digging into this and finds election workers all over the country are already facing threats as they brace for 2024. This past midterm election, things were getting pretty intense at the local elections office in Coos County, Oregon. We would have people in this hallway trying to take pictures of everything we're doing with their phones, you know. Dee Dee Murphy, the county clerk at the time, says local people apparently juiced up on misinformation were camped out inside the building day after day. And some of them were very mean. Even though a couple of years before, Trump won in this county with 59 percent of the vote, Murphy and the other election workers say people would still yell in their faces about voter fraud. Some of it was just kind of weird and ridiculous. Had one woman, she said, you're a wicked woman. 
you're doing awful things in there with the ballots. Over about a month, a security guard stopped people from bringing a total of 20 guns and 60 knives or other weapons inside. And beyond that, some of the altercations were really frightening. 911, what's your emergency? Hi, yes, I work with the county clerk's office. I am currently trying to pick up ballots. I have had somebody following me since I left. During the general election last year, a county worker called 911 four times in a single day as he was driving around collecting ballots from drop boxes. He says a woman in a big Jeep Gladiator truck was following him, videotaping him at each drop box. He says she was armed with a handgun on her belt. He doesn't want to use his name, but remembers at one drop box. I see the Jeep Gladiator turn around the corner and drive very quickly down the road and then slam on the brakes and skid to a stop just past me. And then she leaned out of the car and looked at me and yelled, you f***ing traitor. After that, he says the woman tailgated him right on his bumper, driving erratically, sometimes swerving around next to him. I was terrified. The swerving around my car, I was worried that I might not make it off that road. More than two years after January 6th, Donald Trump's lie that he won the election is alive and well in a large chunk of the Republican Party. Conspiracy theorists tour the country speaking at events claiming that elections are rigged. And the misinformation about voter fraud is endangering the people whose job it is to conduct elections. NPR obtained contact information for thousands of local election workers and attempted to reach them. Workers and officials across 22 different states told NPR that they've received threats or felt unsafe doing their jobs. I actually bring a weapon with me every day to work. That's Nancy Boren, the director of elections in Columbus, Georgia. We spoke to other election workers in Georgia and Virginia who didn't want to use their names. We have a lot of just general use. You're trying to rig the election. You all be ashamed of yourself. They said that they were coming for my family and somebody would have to pay for this. In this past midterm election, an official in Arizona tells NPR someone threatened to murder him and his children. The FBI arrested the person. Here's another official in a southern state who didn't want to use her name for fear of being further targeted. The threat was specifically that the following week that I would not be alive. My home address was made public online and then my dog was poisoned. The dog barely survived. Of course, there is absolutely no evidence of widespread voter fraud. Lawsuits alleging fraud have been thrown out of court by judges all over the country. These election officials are just trying to do their jobs. They're Republicans, Democrats, independents. They're all dealing with this. And it's everyone from top state officials to lower level county workers who handle ballots or even senior citizen volunteers. David Becker heads up the nonprofit Center for Election Innovation and Research. Election officials have been under siege. They've been threatened, abused, and harassed for nearly three years now, and it's getting worse. A recent survey from the nonprofit Brennan Center found that nearly one in three election workers say that they've had to deal with harassment, abuse, or threats, and almost half worry about the safety of their colleagues in future elections. I am very nervous about next year, about the presidential year. I'm nervous about what that's going to look like, too. Back in Coos County, Oregon, the worker who says he was chased in his car and his wife both work in the local elections office. So they've both been dealing with all this, also while having their first baby. She was nine months pregnant this past election. During that time, I was scared 
and I didn't get to feel safe at home either. She also doesn't want to use her name. She says the couple was followed home from work. They say election denier people knocked on the neighbor's doors asking questions about them. Like other election workers that NPR talked to, the couple's now set up a motion-sensitive floodlight and a security camera. Our garbage cans were gone through. There was garbage taken out and mail strewn across their yard. Oh, you mean like in a cop show or something where they like go through the garbage? Yeah, yeah, just like that. Again, it was this mix of ridiculousness along with things that were more serious. Violent sounding social media posts were scary. And the couple doesn't think the community here realizes what they've been going through at the elections office. It felt like we were under attack. Constant phone calls and people coming in and yelling at us. And we were reaching out to the sheriff's office. So they were walking us to and from the building. And anytime we stepped out of the door, people were filming us. And at one point, as the sheriff was leading us outside, people were recording and laughing. Like, that's so funny that we we're so scared that we had the sheriff walk us out. And that was just really crazy. Absolutely inexcusable that that would happen. John Sweet is a Coos County commissioner. He's 83 years old, and he's a Republican who does not believe in the voter fraud conspiracy theories. He says it was hard to watch and hear about local people doing all this to county election workers. You know, it's, it's a form of really a bit of mob activity in a way. You know, the, the mob takes on a personality of its own that's probably different than the prevalent personality of individual members of the mob. I don't think it was unique to our county. It was a a national thing. Everybody remembers the spectacle of the mob at the Capitol on January 6th. But of course, those people came from somewhere and they went back home, where some of them outside of the national spotlight are carrying on the fight. And that's what's been happening here in Coos County. Rod Taylor runs a local surveying supply business. He was arrested for a curfew violation after the riot on January 6th in D.C. I heeded an admonition from General Michael Flynn to go home and make a difference there. And so we started a citizens group here in Coos County called Citizens Restoring Liberty, and we continue to meet weekly. The group is worried about supposed voter fraud and also government regulation of guns, masks, and public schools. Its members have run as candidates for local government and school boards. Taylor himself ran for county commissioner. Here he is speaking ahead of last year's election on a local conservative talk radio show. You know what? I'm proud to have been there on January 6th. Right. Yeah, it was a peaceable gathering on the 6th. And you know what? People were happy, man. It was January 6th was was quite violent. On the talk show, Taylor said he went into the building very briefly, though he says he did not participate in the violence. County officials say it was members of that Citizens Restoring Liberty group who were camped in the hallways of the elections office. But despite their concerns about voter fraud, when the votes were counted, Rod Taylor narrowly won, a result he does not dispute, and he is now a Coos County Commissioner. There's no window in here, unfortunately. I wish I had a little bit of outside light. But uh, Taylor is showing me around his new county office. He's wearing a gun on his belt. He's got a scripture reading of the day on his desk, an American flag, a Trump one sign. We wanted to ask Taylor, does he think it's okay that local election workers here in his own county feel threatened just doing their jobs? Did you realize that there are election workers here in the county who fear for their safety because of this stuff. Yeah, of course I'm aware of that. 
But Taylor says he never threatened election workers himself, and he's not responsible for it. The fact of the matter is, when you've got a large group of people, it's sometimes like herding cats, and you cannot control what individuals do. So um, unfortunately, we did have some people who I think uh, engaged election staff in unproductive ways that I would not have advocated for, uh, and I still don't condone. My biggest worry is that people aren't going to want to do the job anymore. Over at the elections office, Julie Brecky is the new county clerk. She's trying to figure out how to avoid a repeat of last year in the upcoming presidential race. Already, one election worker has resigned. It's an important job, and the people that work in this office take it very seriously, and they like their job. And if they're harassed constantly and made to look like villains, then it, eventually that weighs on people. I don't want to lose good people over harassment based on misinformation. For their part, law enforcement officials say it can be difficult to intervene. 911, what's your emergency? This is Coos County with a transfer. This is for the, the election worker who says he was chased while collecting ballots says he was told by police that since no officers saw this person driving erratically, there was nothing they could do. Okay. They have tried to run me off the road. I'm a little scared. Okay. The county sheriff, Gabe Fabrizio, says there were also complaints from voters who felt harassed or threatened at drop boxes. But he says nothing rose to the level that law enforcement decided that they could do much about. We want to make sure that everybody's First Amendment rights, their freedom of speech is protected. So uh, threats we take definitely seriously and we'll go investigate them. And, but at the same time, you got to balance that off of people can say whatever they want. Around the country, people are trying to find solutions. Some states are passing laws to try to help. Right now, Donald Trump, the election denialist in chief, is the GOP frontrunner in the next presidential election. But that's more than a year away. So state, federal and local governments do have time to try to come up with ways to lower the temperature and keep election workers safe if they don't wait till the last minute. Chris Arnold, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. It's 418, and coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll get the story on the missing submersible. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. On Wall Street, stocks closed down today. The Dow ended the day down about three-quarters of a percent. The Nasdaq was down 0.16. S&P 500 down nearly half a percent. In local business news, Boston Medical Center Health System did not need to go far to find its new leader. Dr. Alistair Bell was named CEO of the health system today. Bell was named president of the organization last November and has been serving as interim CEO since March. He first joined BMC in 2012. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. Tap and listen to WBUR anywhere the season takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. 
It's 63 degrees in Boston, mostly cloudy tonight with some patchy fog and lows in the mid-50s. For the first day of summer tomorrow, starting off with some clouds, then becoming sunny and highs reaching the upper 60s. Thursday should be partly sunny with highs in the low 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. President Joe Biden's surviving son, Hunter, has reached a tentative plea deal with federal prosecutors. That's according to court papers. Under the agreement, Hunter Biden will plead guilty to two tax crimes and admit he lied on his application to obtain a gun. And this legal situation is, of course, happening against a very political backdrop. Joining us now to discuss all of this is NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Hey, Carrie. Hi there. Hey, Carrie, to get us started, can you just catch us up to the facts of this case? The U.S. attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, has has been investigating Hunter Biden since 2018. And the current attorney general, Merrick Garland, gave him full authority to make decisions, including charging decisions. These court papers say Hunter Biden has tentatively agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges, a failure to pay taxes in 2017 and 2018. His representatives say, say that he paid back the IRS what he owed about two years ago. And then separately in the gun case, Hunter Biden will admit he bought a gun in 2018 while addicted to drugs, which is a federal crime. His lawyer, Chris Clark, says it's his understanding the five-year investigation into Hunter Biden is resolved. And Clark says, I know Hunter believes it's important to take responsibility for these mistakes that he made. During a period of turmoil and addiction in his life, he's looking forward to continuing his recovery and moving forward. Okay, and Carrie, is Hunter Biden facing any jail time here? Well, in the tax case, he faces fines of not more than $25,000 and possible imprisonment for about a year on each charge. But a source tells me the DOJ is going to ask for probation. The judge is not obligated to follow that recommendation, though. And then in the gun case, Hunter Biden has agreed to enter what's known as a diversion program, which means he admits to the facts of the case. And under this kind of program, he's going to agree to stay clean for 24 months, perhaps submit to drug tests and supervision, And if he abides by those conditions for a couple of years, the gun charge will be dropped. But if he fails to follow all those rules, the prosecutors could use his admission against him in court later. And Carrie, what has the reaction been to this news so far? Well, former President Trump, who, of course, is a candidate for the White House again in 2024, responded to the news on his social media platform, talking about the corrupt Biden DOJ just clearing up hundreds of years of criminal liability by giving Hunter Biden a mere traffic ticket. He says our system is broken. But a White House spokesman for the Biden White House says the president and first lady love their son and support him as he continues to rebuild his life. 
And Juana, allies of Hunter Biden say this gun charge is rarely brought against a nonviolent offender, especially after the Supreme Court last year upended the way courts deal with firearm restrictions. And the Biden allies also say these tax charges are rare, too, for someone like Hunter Biden, who paid back the money eventually. Mm. Okay. And Carrie, news of this plea deal comes as Republicans on Capitol Hill are intensifying their investigations into President Biden's family. How will this case affect what's happening at the Capitol? The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, and the chairman of the Government Oversight Committee, James Comer, say they're going to go full speed ahead with their investigations of the Biden family. And it's not clear if the Justice Department is actually done investigating Hunter Biden. David Weiss, the U.S. attorney in Delaware, who's a holdover from the Trump administration, says in a news release that his investigation is also ongoing. NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you, as always. My pleasure. A federal judge sided with the shellfish industry on Friday over rules designed to protect endangered whales. On both the east and west coasts, regulators have been closing fishing seasons to prevent whales from getting injured by equipment. Now, a new solution could help solve this pop-up fishing gear. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk has the story. Dungeness crab season is normally still open this time of year off San Francisco, but no one is fishing for crab right now, except for Brand Little. So what we're doing here is we're selling some live Dungeness crabs. Little has a big tank full of live crabs on the deck of his boat at San Francisco's Fisherman's Wharf. Customers are walking up to buy them directly. We're the only boat right now. Crab season was shut down two months early because humpback whales are migrating on the California coast. Crab fishermen use large round traps, or pots as they're called, that sit at the bottom of the ocean. They have a rope that goes hundreds of feet up to the surface. Whales can get entangled in that rope, which can injure or even kill them. We've been tossing around several ideas on what we could do different. Um, one of the ideas was pop-up gear. Pop-up gear is a lot like it sounds. The rope and buoy are coiled up at the bottom of the ocean and kept down there until they pop up. We press a button and an acoustic signal triggers a release that allows that buoy to come up and then we can pull it back. So rather than just sitting out there day and night, it's stored safely on the ocean floor and retrieved when we need it. Little is part of a state experiment to try out this fishing gear to see what is and isn't working. For me, it's a, a adapt or die. You know, you got to roll with the punches. This problem isn't going away without changing the way we do stuff. But that opinion is not popular with other fishermen. <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of flack. I get a lot of flack. There's a lot of guys really upset with me for doing this. That's because few fishermen are even willing to test the gear that manufacturers and regulators are loaning out. As much as I'd like to say, yeah, I'd like to see this all happen right away, I have to protect the industry. Dick Ogg is a crab fisherman just north of San Francisco in Bodega Bay. When I talked to him at the end of December, he was constantly checking his phone. Each other's gear all the time. So um, let me check this because this could be. He was waiting to hear if crab season would finally be opened after more than a month of delay. You know, the fishermen are under a lot of stress. Og has also tested pop-up fishing gear and says the technology works in theory. But some fishermen won't test it because they don't want regulators thinking they're okay with it. It's slower than traditional gear, and crab fishermen work with hundreds of traps. So economically, you can't say, it only takes you a minute longer. If I do one more minute on my pot allocation, that's 5.8 hours a day. 
Pop-up gear also costs from several hundred to several thousand dollars per trap. That's a concern on the East Coast, too, in the lobster fishery. Patrice McCarran is policy director of the Maine Lobstermen's Association. If we bring in a capital-intensive model, we know our small boats don't have that sort of operating capital. And, you know, there's there's a very, very strong concern that we're, we're, we're going to lose them. There's not going to be a place for them. McCarran says fishermen want assurances from regulators that the gear will be rolled out in a way that protects all fishermen. The urgency to figure this out is even higher on the East Coast because of the North Atlantic right whale. Lobster season has been limited there because the whales are at risk of extinction. There's only about 340 of them left. How do we fix this problem? Mark Baumgartner is a senior scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, who is working with fishermen and gear makers to help improve the technology. I think this on-demand system, this ropeless fishing, is a very human way to tackle the problem because it's technology. What we're good at is coming up with technology to solve problems. He says a key step will come later this year, when the federal government starts working on standards for manufacturers making pop-up gear. The Biden administration is putting an extra $27 million towards the effort in the hope of making this technology something the fishing industries on both coasts will be more open to. Lauren Summer, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR. It's 429. And coming up in about 20 minutes, you'll meet the author of the new novel, Holding Pattern. It takes the familiar story of a young adult moving back home and flips it over. That and much more ahead on WBUR's All Things Considered. Listening to WBUR is a great way to follow the news. Another great option checking your inbox each weekday morning. WBUR Today gives you a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. It's 63 degrees in Boston and clouds around tonight, some patchy fog overnight with lows dropping to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy start, then becoming sunny and highs in the upper 60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Rescuers call it a race against time. Experts worldwide are following the search in the Atlantic Ocean for a submersible that was carrying five people to examine the wreckage of the Titanic. It's basically imagining a spacecraft disappeared on the far side of the moon. The latest on the frantic search for the Titan on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Coast Guard says an extensive 10,000-square-mile search for a missing underwater vessel that disappeared Sunday in the North Atlantic has yet to locate the sub. That submersible was on a mission to document the wreckage of the Titanic when communications were cut short. Five people are on board the sub called the Titan, and the vessel's oxygen supply is expected to run out early Thursday. Coast Guard Captain Jamie Frederick calls it a complex search in an area that's larger than the size of Connecticut. These search efforts have focused on both surface, with C-130 aircraft searching by sight and with radar, and subsurface with P-3 aircraft 
were able to drop and monitor sonar buoys. To date, those search efforts have not yielded any results. He says an underwater remotely operated vehicle is searching the site and they're also getting help from several countries in a race against the clock. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says Germany has no interest in breaking ties with China. NPR's Rob Schmidt says his comments came today after he met with China's premier in Berlin. The capital of Europe's biggest economy was Chinese Premier Li Qiang's first foreign trip as premier, underlining the close economic ties between Germany and China. China is Germany's biggest trading partner, and Schultz said he advocated for improvement when it comes to a level playing field for German companies in China's market. Schultz also said while addressing Russia's war in Ukraine that all international borders must be respected and that no country has the right to treat another like its backyard. Analysts said this may have been a subtle reference to Taiwan, a self-governing island China sees as its own. These talks in Berlin come the same week U.S. Secretary of State paid a visit to Chinese leader Xi Jinping in Beijing. Rob Schmidt, NPR News, Berlin. Stocks finish lower on Wall Street today. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. More now on that missing submersible vessel. It went missing Sunday while on its way to explore the wreck of the Titanic. The company that runs the trips has a history of facing questions about its equipment safety. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports court filings show a former submarine pilot said he was fired after he raised concerns about the submersible's structural integrity. U.S. Coast Guard officials say they're still searching for the submersible Titan in the waters 900 miles off Cape Cod. There's no word yet on how or why Ocean Gate's tourist sub went missing. But in a whistleblower lawsuit filed in Seattle federal court, the vessel's former pilot said he raised serious concerns about its safety. Ocean Gate's former director of marine operations, David Lockridge, said the company did not properly test the submersible's carbon fiber hull. He said when he raised his concerns with the company's executives, he was fired. OceanGate doesn't deny firing Lockridge, but says he breached his contract and shared trade secrets. The parties settled out of court. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. OceanGate did not respond to a request for comment. Massachusetts could be getting closer to eliminating single-use plastic shopping bags, Two state lawmakers have filed bills that would do just that in nearly all cases. Similar bans already are in place in more than 150 communities in Massachusetts, including Boston, Worcester, and Springfield. Eileen Ryan with Beyond Plastics Greater Boston says the bills would eliminate a lot of confusion for merchants and shoppers. Usually when you have this kind of momentum and a lot of cities and towns are passing ordinances, you see the state taking over and saying, oh, if this amount of the population wants this, we should pass it as a statewide bill. We haven't seen that in Massachusetts, and it's very frustrating. The proposed legislation would encourage shoppers to use reusable shopping bags and would allow stores to sell recycled paper bags to customers for 10 cents. Boston summers are getting hotter. A new study from the research group Climate Central shows that the average summer temperature in the city has risen from 71.7 degrees in 1970 to 74.1 degrees last summer. That's a 2.4 degree increase, which was the average increase seen across the country. It's 435.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. It's 63 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-50s tonight. Some clouds to start tomorrow, then becoming sunny and highs in the upper 60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with season two of The Tower starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Data.IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. 96 hours. According to the U.S. Coast Guard, that is believed to be the sustainment capability for the Titanic submersible that went missing in the North Atlantic on Sunday with five people on board. David Marquet is a retired U.S. Navy submarine captain. He told NPR this morning that their chances of survival at this point are very low. I'm hopeful, but I think the family should prepare themselves for bad news. I would I would say at this point about 1%. We're going to speak now to someone with direct firsthand experience of the missing vessel. CBS Sunday morning correspondent David Pogue traveled on the Titan submersible last year. Hey there. Hi. Hi. So were you doing the same itinerary that these five people set out to do, going down to explore the wreck of the Titanic? I I was indeed. We were there to do a story about this very unusual adventure travel company and their one-of-a-kind submersible. Yeah. And describe it for us. It's called the Titan. It is It is not big. 22 feet long? Yeah. It, inside, it, it feels like you're in a minivan without seats. You, you sit on the floor. The actual body of the thing is a carbon fiber cylinder. So the walls are curved. It's very modern looking. It has cool lighting. There's a sound system. There's a couple of computer screens. And there is one round window at the end, about 21 inches across and when you're visiting the titanic you take turns looking out the porthole looking out the porthole okay um how do you steer it who's steering it who's controlling it there are two pilots uh one of which is stockton rush the sub's designer and the ceo and he drives the sub with a game controller it looks like the one you'd use with an xbox or something it has the, the right levers and, and buttons to go up, down, left, right, and, and so on. And his argument is it might look cheap and <laughs> uh, consumer-y, but it's a tried and true, very reliable component, and it does exactly what we need. And sorry, just to be clear, this is something that looks like a video game controller or actually, actually is an off-the-shelf video game controller? It actually is an off-the-shelf game controller. <laughs> I, I will say that there are a number of off-the-shelf parts on this submersible. He, he told me that the lighting he bought from camperworld.com. The, the main thing, though, is that the part we care about, that carbon fiber tube, the, the pressure vessel, as he calls it, that was designed in conjunction with NASA and the University of Washington and was intended to be fail-safe. And, I mean, you 
came back. You're here talking to me now. So you were safe. Did things go to plan? Was your trip smooth? My trip was not smooth. We made it 37 feet down, and then they ran into a mechanical problem, and we had to abort the dive. Uh, I was devastated and crushed and did not see it coming. But I have since learned that these dives rarely go to plan. With each of these expeditions that OceanGate makes, they spend five days over the shipwreck. And typically of those five days, they manage to get down only once or twice. And this season, it's been zero. And the setup you're describing is that there's a, there's the submersible, which is actually going all the way down, and there's a, a surface ship that is close by that is in constant contact and where you're kind of launching to and from? That's right. The, okay. the definition of a submersible is a craft that is too weak and low-powered to get anywhere on its own. It has to be carried everywhere. So we sail out to the Titanic spot on this surface vessel where the controls are and the navigation. There, there is no GPS underwater and regular radio waves don't travel underwater. So all the where are we stuff depends on the control room on the ship. So as we all try to imagine what the experience has been for this crew of five uh, on the now missing Titan, walk me through what kind of prep, what kind of training you were required to do before you got on board. We got a lot of training for uh, getting around on the surface vessel, which is not a consumer vehicle by any means. It's a, an industrial petroleum rig servicing ship. So it has dangers of its own. And then we got uh, in-depth tours of the Titan itself, inside and outside. We learned the parts of it. There really is no safety gear in there except for a fire extinguisher and fire masks, which we practiced putting on and taking off. That's pretty much it because there's not much you can do if something goes wrong. What you, what you can do is rise to the surface and th there are seven different ways to return to the surface, just redundancy after redundancy. They can drop sandbags, they can drop lead pipes, they can inflate a balloon, they can use the thrusters, they can even jettison the legs of the sub to lose weight. And some of these, by the way, work even if the power is out and even if everyone on board is passed out. So, so there's sort of a dead man switch such that the hooks holding on to sandbags dissolve after a certain number of hours in the water, release the sandbags, and bring you to the service even if you're unconscious. I want to understand what you're saying. You're saying there's redundancy upon redundancy, seven different ways this vessel is supposed to surface. But as far as we can tell, it hasn't surfaced. So what does that tell us? Well, we, we really have no idea. I mean, the waves are six feet high. It's all white caps. The sub itself is white. I don't know how an airplane is going to expect to find it in hundreds of miles of, of rough seas. So for all we know, they are floating somewhere on the surface right now. And the, the tragedy of that is you're bolted in from the outside. There's 18 bolts that seal you inside. You can't get out without assistance from an external crew. So that would be the real nightmare scenario. If they're, they're alive and floating and unable to escape. Without wishing to speculate, because as you said, nobody knows what the situation is. Um, 
Some of the things you have just described to me give me real pause. I think you use the word janky to describe some of the gear. Who regulates a submersible like this? Who is enforcing safety regs? Are there safety regs? Nobody, because these dives take place in international waters, so there's no governing body. And I will tell you that when we boarded the surface vessel, we signed waivers that would curl your toes. I mean, it was basically a list of eight paragraphs describing ways that you could be permanently disabled or killed. So this is not a, a tourist company or an airline you know, for the masses. This is for rich, adrenaline junkie adventurers who thrive on the risk. It's a lifestyle that not all of us may be able to identify with, but for them, you know, the risk is the life. David Pogue of CBS sharing his experience of traveling on the now-missing submersible, the Titan. David Pogue, thanks. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is getting a new director. President Biden has named Dr. Mandy Cohen to the role. She's the former health secretary for North Carolina. NPR's Ping Wong is here to tell us more about her. Hey there. Hey, Lana. Hey, so who exactly is Dr. Cohen? Tell us a little bit about her background. Well, Dr. Cohen is 44 years old. She's an internal medicine doctor, and she's worked in top positions in state and federal government. As you mentioned, Juana, she's probably best known for serving as North Carolina's health secretary. She was there from 2017 to 2021, was the face of their pandemic response. And she reflected on that experience as a commencement speaker last month at Guilford College. What can be learned from this dumpster fire of a time? The central learning for me is about the importance of trust. And I truly believe change happens at the pace of trust. Cohen also worked in the Obama administration. She was chief operating officer at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, where she helped roll out the Affordable Care Act. So she mentioned trust there. And I mean, we should point out the CDC lost a good deal of public trust during the course Mm -hmm. of the pandemic. What is Dr. Cohen facing as she takes over this agency? You're right. I mean, the CDC's reputation got severely tarnished in the pandemic. Outgoing director Dr. Rochelle Walensky says that they made some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes. So Cohen will be tasked with rebuilding the trust publicly um, and also rebuilding the agency from the inside. This is a federal agency with 10,000 employees and attrition has been high. Morale has been low. Another thing that Cohen will be tasked with is advocating for the agency in Washington. She's going to be pushing for more money, more authorities for the CDC and Congress. And it's an ask that she's going to be making in the middle of a big budget crunch. And she's also facing opposition from some Republican lawmakers. For instance, last week, a group of 28 Republicans sent a letter to the president calling her, quote, unfit for the position. Okay, so those are the political challenges. But beyond that, what will Cohen have on her hands when it comes to the nation's public health? Right. I mean, that is the CDC's core mission, protecting the nation's public health. I spoke with Dr. Georges Benjamin. He's head of the American Public Health Association, and he says the agency has a lot on its plate. It's still dealing with COVID, and it has a lot of other challenges, too. 
we still have an obesity epidemic, opioid epidemic, a firearm epidemic. We have a, a rising number of STDs. That's just part of the list. And there's also not enough people trained to respond. Many people left the field in the past few years, and the nation now has a deficit of 80,000 public health workers. So Cohen's going to be juggling a lot. Yeah, sounds like it. What do we know, if anything, about Cohen's approach and how she'll manage all of this? Well, supporters that I spoke with point to a few key traits that made her Biden's pick for the role. She's got experience navigating politics, both on the state and federal levels. For instance, in North Carolina, she worked for a Democratic governor with a Republican legislature to try and expand access to health care. People that have worked with her and for her also say that she's an expert in managing people and implementing policy. And one of her great strengths, they say, is communicating. She's able to connect with the public. She's able to put things in language that people can understand. And another thing colleagues say another thing colleagues say is that she does not shy away from hard things. She tackles them head on. And that's going to be something that she's going to have to rely on as she's going to be tasked, as we said, with rebuilding the public health workforce, fighting for the CDC's resources and powers in Congress. So right now, Cohen's wrapping up some paperwork and her responsibility okay. to, uh, responsibilities at her current job with the healthcare company Allidade. She starts as CDC director next month. NPR's Peng Wong, thank you. You're welcome. And you're listening to All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 448. And coming up in a few minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the latest on the search for the missing submersible. Also, you'll check out some of the high school finalists in the NPR Student Podcast Challenge. That and much more ahead on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, Nestled in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. For business or summer fun, the suites at the Elliott are designed to create memorable experiences. ElliottHotel.com. It is 63 degrees in Boston. Some clouds and some fog around tonight. Lows overnight in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, it's the first day of summer. It'll get off to a mostly cloudy start and then become sunny with temperatures in the upper 60s tomorrow. Thursday should be partly sunny with highs in the low 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include BU School of Social Work, top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. bu.edu slash SSW. Russia has warned many times since the start of the Ukraine war that it might resort to using nuclear weapons. Most observers think that's just bellicose bluster. But one former defense attaché to Moscow takes what he's hearing very seriously. If the Ukrainian counteroffensive is successful, then I think it's clearly over 50% likely that uh, Putin would use a nuclear weapon. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It's a familiar story. A young adult flailing as they attempt to navigate adult life decides to move home back to the safety of the parental nest. Well, a new novel takes that familiar story and turns it on its head. It's called Holding Pattern. It's the story of Kathleen Chung, who has just been dumped by her boyfriend. She wants to drop out of grad school. So she moves home, moves back in with her mom to find someone she barely recognizes. The author is Jenny Shea. Welcome. Hi, Mary Louise. I'm so excited to be here. All right, you open the book with the two of them in a bridal boutique because Marissa, the mom, has just gotten engaged. Set the scene for us. So 
Kathleen and Marissa have had a fraught relationship. When Kathleen was growing up, Marissa really leaned on her for emotional support um, as her own marriage was falling apart. She was depressed. She was drinking. She was really homesick for China. And Kathleen has gone away and now come home, and she's at a crossroads in her life. And there's been a huge rupture in that she's flailing from her academic track. The relationship that she was in has um, broken apart. And now she finds herself sort of at the inverse of the usual wedding narrative where she's preparing for her mom's wedding. Yeah. And her mom is completely unrecognizable. And she, Kathleen thinks of it as like Marissa 2.0 in that she's drinking green juice and running up hills and rock climbing. And the person that she wanted to hold accountable kind of isn't there anymore. Yeah. Um, So Kathleen, she's back home. She's back on her mom's roof. She's not entirely happy about this. She has no idea what's coming next. And she spots a job and applies. And the job is certified cuddle provider. Explain. <laughs> this is something that I found when I, in my own life, was looking for a summer job. I had never heard of professional cuddling before, but it exists. And it is a job where you platonically cuddle a stranger, and that is the service. And it fulfills a need that a lot of people have, that actually all of us have, for skin contact and touch. It's really good for you across the board, mentally, physically, emotionally. And for some reason, it's just not readily available as, as a way of caretaking. The company that you invented, Midas Touch, on on their app, they have a description um, of like what you might be signing up for and, and different holds to try. Would you give us a sample? Yeah, absolutely. We all deserve to take a load off after a long day of pounding the pavement. For the lap of luxury, one cuddler sits on the couch while the other leans against the armrest and stretches their legs across their partner's lap, conveniently positioning themselves for a foot rub. Hint, hint. <laughs> so I wrote those, you know, in the voice of of this millennially branded company, right? So it's got this weird sheen of like cheer. <laughs> yeah. It's safe to say that the mom, Marissa, is skeptical when she finds out this is what her daughter is doing uh, for work. And some of that stems, you know, I'm sure is generational. Some of it is cultural. Would you talk about... Um, some of the choices that Marissa, the mom, made coming to the U.S. as an immigrant, as a young woman from Shanghai. I really wanted to talk about the mother-daughter experience. I think it's such a fraught love, a magnificent love, but it's immediately complicated by all the pressures that society puts on girls and women and the narrow roles that they slot them into. And for Kathleen and Marissa, I wanted to add this additional layer of complexity, which is what happens when you're part of an immigrant family. And so when Marissa and Kathleen moved to the States, what essentially happened is that Marissa moved Kathleen into a realm a little bit beyond her understanding because they have completely different understandings of history, different values, different worldviews. And so 
everything that they would have to navigate as mother and daughter is compounded by this sort of inscrutability and unknowability. And part of that is what does success look like? And what are different avenues and ways of being? And for Kathleen, this cuddle experiment is completely beyond what her mom can can stomach. Yeah. In the case of your characters, they spend most of the novel not talking or talking past each other. And then finally, near the end, Marissa says something that's so kind and also true. She tells her daughter, you're good at helping people. And you felt these two women seeing each other and really hearing each other. Where do you hope they go from there? Because none of the things that have divided them in past have gone away. Mm-hmm. It's not a neat ending. And Probably some folks will be frustrated by that, but I don't think that's true to life. I don't think you come to a perfect understanding ever, and especially not with your mother. And what I hope for Kathleen and Marissa is that they start to see, as you said, a little bit beyond the narratives that have been so ingrained about each other. I think as a mother and daughter, what can happen because you've known each other for so long and you know, been fit into a certain framework, you can start to travel the same narratives and everything that you're learning can kind of lock into that narrative. And it's really hard to actually see the other person wholly for who they are. And for Kathleen and Marissa in in the book, I think a couple ruptures happen that allow them to see a little bit outside of that frame. And moving forward, you you get the sense that things will open up and they'll come to better understandings about each other. And because they're so bound, that that will become better understandings about themselves. And explain the title, Holding Pattern. It's really descriptive of where Kathleen is in her life. And it also touches on the themes of touch, connection, and intimacy that run throughout the book and the way that she's using her experiences with cuddling to rethink some of her relationships and especially her relationship with her mom. Yeah, that all makes total sense. I was also thinking about the holding on to the past and the patterns for better or worse that we get into in relationships. And that also, as you've just laid out, runs so clearly through the book between Marissa, her mom, and all of the other characters. Yes. It's so easy to keep doing what you've been doing. And I think it it needs something really disruptive to force you out of that. But a silver lining of having your life blow up is that you get to reorient yourself <laughs> and figure out if you know if the direction you were going in is is really the direction you want to be going in or if it wasn't just something that you were doing by momentum well here's to silver linings and congrats on the book thank you so much that's jenny shia her debut novel is titled holding pattern You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. From Angie, Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. 
From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Thanks for spending some of the last full day of spring with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. R&B and neo-soul singer-songwriter Miranda Ray headlines our next Sound On Music Festival at City Space. That's this Friday, June 23rd. For details and tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 63 degrees in Boston with lows in the 50s tonight. Tomorrow, starting off cloudy, then becoming sunny and highs in the upper 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Rescuers are racing against time to find the missing submersible carrying people to view wreckage from the Titanic. Our crews are working around the clock to ensure that we are doing everything possible to locate the Titan and the five crew members. It is Tuesday, June 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. The co-chairs of the Council on Foreign Relations Independent Taiwan Task Force discuss the new report on the state of U.S.-Taiwan relations. Also, an influential health panel now recommends all adults under age 65 be screened for anxiety disorders by their primary care physicians. And WBUR's Martha Biebinger has a crafting story. When dedicated crafters die, they sometimes leave projects unfinished. There's a group that gives those projects to other crafters who complete the creations and return them to the families. It's 5.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden's son Hunter is waiting to hear when he will be arraigned on tax charges after entering a tentative plea deal with the Justice Department. NPR's Carrie Johnson has more. Court papers say Hunter Biden is agreeing to plead guilty to two misdemeanor counts of failing to pay taxes in 2017 and 2018. He's also admitting he purchased a gun while addicted to drugs in 2018, a felony offense. But prosecutors have agreed to send Biden to a diversion program for the weapons charge, meaning that if he stays clean for two years, it can be wiped off his record. The DOJ probe has been led by Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss, a Trump holdover, and it includes two prosecutors from Baltimore. In a written statement, Weiss says the investigation is ongoing. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The U.S. Coast Guard says an extensive search hasn't yet turned up any sign of the underwater vehicle that disappeared Sunday while en route to the wreck of the Titanic. From member station GBH in Boston, Craig Lamalt reports the search by vessels from several countries is a race against the clock. Five people are aboard the sub called the Titan. The vessel had a 96-hour oxygen supply. That means supplies would run out early Thursday. At the U.S. Coast Guard base in Boston, Captain Jamie Frederick said the search area is larger than the size of Connecticut. He said it's a complex search. You're talking about a search area that's 900 miles east of Cape Cod, uh, 400 miles south of uh, St. John's. 
So logistically speaking, it's hard to bring assets to bear. It takes time, it takes coordination. Frederick said an underwater, remotely operated vehicle is searching the site, and they're working on getting more search vehicles out there. For NPR News, I'm Craig Lamolt in Boston. Virginia voters headed to the polls today to cast ballots in a number of tight primary races. As Ben Pavier from member station VPM reports, both parties are investing heavily to gain control of the Commonwealth's divided legislature. A dozen state senators in Virginia face primary challengers this year, all but two of them Democrats. Many of the races pit veteran lawmakers against younger challengers, or in one case, against each other. At a campaign event in Richmond, U.S. Senator Tim Kaine said the party needs a strong field headed into November. We know what going backwards feels like, and we're not going to do it again. Republicans, who won the executive branch and House of Delegates in 2021, also have a few close primaries. Governor Glenn Youngkin has waded into several of them with endorsements and has already raised several million dollars to help Republicans. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow was down 245 points to end at 34,053. That's down seven-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq down 22 points. The S&P 500 down 20 points to end at 43.88. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Newly released court documents are shedding light on the 2019 death of five-year-old Harmony Montgomery. The girl was living in a car in New Hampshire with her father, Adam Montgomery, his now-estranged wife, and the couple's two sons at the time of Harmony's disappearance. Adam Montgomery allegedly hit Harmony in the head several times as she sat in the car. The court documents allege Adam Montgomery then hid the girl's body for several months before disposing of the body in March of 2020. Her body has still not been found. Last year, Adam Montgomery pleaded not guilty to second-degree murder and other charges. New England Patriots cornerback Jack Jones has pleaded not guilty to several weapons-related charges. In East Boston District Court, Jones is free on $30,000 bail and will return to court in August. He was arrested Friday at Logan Airport after security personnel reported finding two pistols in his carry-on bag. Jones also was arrested in 2018, accused of burglary in California. In that case, he served 45 days of house arrest. The Amtrak Downeaster is getting a special exemption from New Hampshire liquor laws so that the train can continue to serve alcoholic drinks in its cafe car on the route between Boston and Maine. Todd Bookman reports the State Liquor Commission had been granting Amtrak interim permission while the train sorted out a licensing issue. While reapplying for its liquor license earlier this year, Nextine, the company contracted to provide food and drinks aboard the Downeaster, ran into a problem. The Liquor Commission determined that it wasn't purchasing its spirits from the state, which is required for anyone who sells booze in New Hampshire. The commission ultimately granted the Downeaster temporary permission so the train and booze could still flow. Now, Governor Chris Sununu has signed a bipartisan fix into law. The measure grants dining cars on trains that travel into New Hampshire permission to purchase their booze from out-of-state vendors. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. Tonight, the Red Sox play the Twins in Minnesota. In the forecast for the Boston area, clouds and some fog around overnight with lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, for the first day of summer, starting off with some clouds, then becoming sunny and highs reaching the upper 60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Focus Features with Asteroid City, the new comedy from director Wes Anderson. 
starring Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, and Tom Hanks. Now playing in New York and Los Angeles, in theaters everywhere this Friday. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The search continues, but hopes are dimming for the five people, including tourists, lost since their deepwater expedition to the site of the Titanic of the Titanic wreck on Sunday. U.S. and Canadian teams are adding more vessels, more aircraft to help the search, which is unfolding some 900 miles off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. NPR's Tovia Smith is following this. And Tovia, what's the latest? Well, we know they're searching the waters and they are watching the clock because there's now less than two days left of their emergency oxygen supply. But we don't know what happened to this sub, where it is, or why it lost communication Sunday with its support vessel on the surface. It just went silent in the middle of what should have been a a two-and-a-half-hour dive down to the wreckage site. So now Coast Guard Captain Jamie Frederick says the search and rescue effort is expanding. It's already an area the size of Connecticut. These search efforts have focused on both surface, with C-130 aircraft searching by sight and with radar, and subsurface, with P-3 aircraft, we're able to drop and monitor sonar buoys. To date, those search efforts have not yielded any results. Also, I may add, so far no explanation for what appears to be an hours-long gap between the time the sub lost contact and when the Coast Guard was called for help. Uh, the company that owns the sub, OceanGate, uh, says it has, has said very little, uh, beyond that it's doing all it can to bring the crew back safely. Stay with that company, though, OceanGate. What do we know about them? Yep, it's a for-profit company that runs these expeditions for tourists at some $250,000 a pop. I'll play a little vibe of their promo video. A 12,500-foot journey to the bottom of the sea, earning raves from those who've taken our unforgettable dives. There's no other trip like this. OceanGate also pitches how safe it is, but some have questioned that. I spoke to a longtime Titanic diver, G. Michael Harris, who raises concerns, for example, about what he believes is the sub's relatively weak hull, made of carbon fiber instead of steel, and about diving without another sub in tandem. It's always concerned me. This is an experimental vessel that they created, and so it's very cowboy. I wouldn't get in it, I'll tell you that. What do we know about the people who did get in it, the the tourists who were on board? Yep, there are three paying customers, a father and son from Pakistan and a British businessman. He posted just before the trip about uh, Sunday being finally a break in what's been a long stretch of treacherous and prohibitive weather conditions. And also aboard is OceanGate's CEO, who's piloting the sub, and a diver and researcher who happens to be a 30-year friend and colleague of G. Michael Harris. It's just been so frustrating for me. I mean, it's one of those things that you hope will never happen, but I've just had such a bad feeling the last couple of years. I'll add, I also spoke with Mike Reese, the TV writer who took this very same trip himself a couple of years ago, and he says with eyes wide open. If you want to explore like this, you are very much putting your life in your hands. And you sign a waiver that mentions death three times on the first page. I mean, it's just a laundry list of ways you might die. So nobody walks into this blind. Still, those warnings are, of course, a small consolation for the families who are worrying about the fate of their loved ones. And Pierre's Tovia Smith. Thanks, Tovia. Thank you. 
for the first time, an influential task force now recommends all people under age 65 be screened for anxiety problems at regular checkups. As NPR's Michaeline Duclef reports, the goal is to help more people receive treatment more quickly. Anxiety and depression have been rising in this country since the early 1900s. Dr. Jeffrey Staub is a psychiatrist at the Mayo Clinic. He says the opioid epidemic and then the COVID pandemic greatly exacerbated these problems. So it's sort of a triple whammy that's increased the rates of anxiety disorders and depressive disorders and others. Last year, a panel of clinicians called the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force said that all children over age seven should be screened for anxiety disorders by their pediatricians or family doctors at annual exams, even if they don't have symptoms. Now the task force has extended that guidance to adults under age 65. The panel found that anxiety problems are often missed at primary care clinics, and only about 10% of people started treatment within a year of their symptoms. Staub welcomes the recommendations, but he says there's concerns they could worsen disparities in who can access help for anxiety, because many people in low-income communities don't have access to primary care clinics because the guidelines are for primary care clinicians to do the screening. So if you don't even have a foot in the door at all for medical care, then these aren't going to help much. And what about for older people? Staub says the panel didn't recommend screening for people over age 64 because there just haven't been big enough high-quality studies with that group. There's nothing magic about age 65. It's just how the data are collected and the fact that the task force didn't feel there was enough good research data to extend the recommendation into older adults. The task force also reviewed its advice for depression and continues to recommend screening for all adults, no matter their age. Michaeline Duclef, NPR News. Today, we'd like to introduce you to a young woman named Sara Roshan. Hi, my name is Sara. Sara is a student at West Adams Preparatory High School in Los Angeles. She is originally from Herat province, Afghanistan. I had a long journey that changed my life forever, and it was my journey to the U.S. That journey is the subject of a podcast she created. It tells of her family's decision to leave Afghanistan and the central role that education played in that decision. My mom did not want me to have the same destiny as hers, where she was the same age as me, but banned from school. So she left her parents behind. Sara tells of the millions of girls and young women who were denied education in her home country. She knows that while she has left, many remain. I hear this a lot when people go like, you're lucky for coming here, or I'm glad you made it out of there. Well, thanks, but I wasn't really glad at first. But that guilty feeling of making it out of there while watching others being left behind. Obviously, I can't make big changes, But I can study harder for myself, for my friends, and for all the people in my country. Hers is one of more than 3,300 entries our education team received this year in the fifth annual NPR Student Podcast Challenge. Sara's was one of 13 chosen by our judges as high school finalists. And as always, we received a broad mix of podcasts from different backgrounds, places, and experiences, from moving personal stories like Sara's to deeply reported projects, like an entry from students in Maryland exploring the fentanyl crisis that 
has affected their school system. For reference, fentanyl is 50 times more lethal than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. It's a really big problem in schools, and there have been overdoses really near to us in some of like our neighboring high schools. People are actively dying. Maybe someone overdosing right now. Three students from Montgomery Blair High School in Silver Spring, Maryland, interviewed local experts and educators at their school about the disturbing jump in overdoses in recent years. Well, this year we got a lot of podcasts about gaming and sports. The judges singled out this one as a finalist. I'm in the kitchen cleaning dishes after school. As I scrub away at the plates in my hand, one of my many favorite soccer podcasts is Blasting Out Loud. Like most American soccer fans, I watch, listen, and learn from these pundits. But sometimes, their comments on soccer in America can seem a bit off. Which begs the question, has soccer in America changed over the generations? If so, why? And what does the future of American soccer look like? That is 16-year-old Aya Almashabi, a high school student in Branson, Colorado, who confidently sets out to answer that question. Along the way, she weaves in the story of how, when she was younger, an older boy taught her the fundamentals of the game. Since the moment that boy taught me how to play, soccer has been my life. Through many miserable 90 minutes and overwhelming moments of joy, but more importantly, memories with those I love. And sadly, we got quite a few student podcasts this year about gun violence and mass shootings, including this one from Natalie Martinez, a student in the After School Matters program in Chicago who survived one of these incidents at a local mall. It was March 26, 2022, when I heard six gunshots and ran to the back of the store. Suddenly, I felt terrified, aghast, and petrified. While I was sitting and crying, I called my family and friends, telling them I'll miss and love them to the moon and back because I thought I was going to die. Natalie interviewed a Chicago police officer for advice on what students should do in such a situation. Number one is to always be aware of your environment and any possible dangers that might be around you. Number two, As always, many of our student podcasters explored their own identities, their places in the world. Two of this year's high school finalists are by and about transgender students. Dylan McDonald is a student at Marblehead High School in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Hi, my name is Dylan, and I am a transgender teen. For his reporting, Dylan interviewed his mom. He says she has been the person in my corner. And his podcast concludes with this message. Kids like me are why we need to fight these anti-trans bills. Nobody should be stripped of their health care and bodily autonomy. Again, I think my mom says it the best. To be a mom of a transgender kid is the same as anything that you're fighting for your kid for, right? So as a mama bear, like every mama bear, you're going to make sure that your child receives everything they possibly have out there that's an option to them, um, that could make them content and happy and feel like themselves. That is Dylan McDonald and his mom. He's a high school finalist in NPR's Student Podcast Challenge. On Morning Edition, we will announce our grand prize winner in the middle school grades. And tomorrow on this program, we'll have our high school grand prize winner. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518 and coming up in about 25 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the story on veteran singer-songwriter Jenny Lewis 
She's just released her fifth solo album called Joy Y'all. That and more ahead on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style Event. Window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed down today. The Dow ended the day down about three quarters of a percent. The Nasdaq was down 0.16. S&P 500 down nearly half a percent. In local business news, unemployment rates have decreased in the past month in 21 of 24 local labor markets in Massachusetts. The rates stayed flat in the other three markets. In May, Barnstable had the highest percentage of job increases, followed by Greater Lawrence. Statewide, the unadjusted unemployment rate for May was 2.3 percent. That's more than a percentage point lower than the national average. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. And Refuge Point, finding lasting solutions for refugees so they can thrive. This World Refugee Day, learn how you can help at refugepoint.org slash WBUR. It is 64 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-50s overnight with some clouds and patchy fog. Tomorrow starting off mostly cloudy, then becoming sunny, and highs reaching the upper 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Anna Mae Wong was the first Chinese-American actor to ever achieve Hollywood stardom. But that glittering fame came at a price. Stereotypes and tropes about Asian women gave her access to movie roles, but they also imprisoned her. Moviegoers recognized Anna Mae Wong as the dragon lady, the opium dealer, and so often the sex worker. I'm sure you're very respectable, madam. I must confess, I don't quite know the standard of respectability that you demand in your boarding house. Never fully American, never fully Chinese, never fully seen by Hollywood. In the new book, The Brightest Star, Gail Sukiyama reimagines the internal life of Anna Mae Wong and offers a fictionalized account of the actor's thoughts and emotions as she navigated an industry that insisted on flattening her. Gail Sukiyama joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Lovely to have you. So even though you've written historical fiction before, this was your first time writing from the perspective of a real person, right? Like, yes. How did you inhabit a real person in history and imagine their internal voice? It was frightening <laughs> for me. You know, you know, I mean, every book is different. Trying to figure out, you know, this is not a character of my imagination. This is a real person who lived. I want to keep her legacy. I want to do it right. And how am I going to do this? Um, what well, great help finally was getting her letters um, mm. and reading them over and over. And she had written to her good friends, Carl Van yeah. Vechten and his wife, Fania. Um, and I knew as soon as I could feel her voice 
that it would be it would be a story that would come from her voice. Absolutely. You portray this bind that Anna Mae Wong was in. She was not Chinese enough to some people in her life, too Chinese in many other ways to Hollywood. You know, she was celebrated for her beauty and her acting ability, but what remained elusive to her as a Chinese woman was being cast in the lead role of a movie. Back then, what Hollywood opted for was putting a leading white actor in yellow face. Can you just explain the rationale for that? This idea that someone could be too Chinese to play a Chinese character. Yeah, isn't it incredible to think about that now? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, as it's I was so writing, deeply yeah. offensive in 2023, but this happened all the time. But, you know, if you think about it also, Tilda Swindon in the Marvel yes. movie, yes. and they had put her in yellow face, and that was, what, five years ago? Exactly. You know, it's, it's mind-boggling. Um, but, you know, there's one scene when she sees her first white actress in yellow face. And she thinks from a distance that it's a Chinese actress, Anna Mae Wong, and she's nine years old and she's on a film set and she's thinking, oh my God, there's a Chinese actress there. You know, her dream was coming true. And as the woman approaches her, she realizes it's that's not... That's no Chinese woman. That's no Chinese. She's got a black coarse wig on, her eyes are pulled up, you know, her face is all white with pink blush cheeks, um, a really ruby red lipstick. Um, you know, it was a monster to her in the end. And she never forgot that, you know. So she accepts it later because she knows that this is how Hollywood at that time got people to go to the movies, that they saw that it was somebody famous. It was a white actress who was famous, who was playing the Chinese star. Well, also, I mean, there were certain rules in place, anti-miscegenation laws, yes, banned yeah, interracial yeah. marriage in California. There was also the Hayes Code, which were these morality standards that Hollywood self-imposed. These rules also prevented Anna Mae Wong from being cast as a leading lady alongside a white actor, let alone kissing a white actor on screen, yeah. right? Well, you know, there was that line, um, you know, she could never be a leading lady because she could never kiss a leading man. Yep. You know, and yeah, and that was something that she had lived with and fought against, but could never break that barrier. Yeah. You know, so then she had gone to Europe, hoping that she could find the freedom there. But you know, what was truly admirable, at least in the version that your novel puts forth, is that despite getting pressure from so many different directions, Anna Mae Wong resisted complete assimilation. I was struck by how she literally wore her Chineseness on her sleeve. Like she wore so many chi pao's, the traditional high collared fitted Chinese dress, or she would mix Western and Chinese styles in her outfits. And yet, throughout much of her career, people in China were not thrilled with her as a representative for their country either. Can you explain that piece of it? Why people in China were unhappy with the anime Wong on screen? We're, we're talking about the conservative aspect of the Chinese. There were a lot of liberal Chinese that felt she was a good actress. Mm -hmm. I mean, in her first film, The Toe of the Sea, when she was 17 years old, her first lead role, and it would only be one of two lead roles that she would ever get in her lifetime as an actress. But in that film, it was a story based on the Puccini opera, Madame Butterfly. Mm -hmm. She played a woman, a young girl, who's seduced by a white man that she saves who, who's drowning and falls in love with him and ends up having his child and he leaves her and goes back to America. And China, I think, at that moment, 
thought maybe they had somebody here. And what had happened is from that role, she wanted to continue playing the kind of actress with depth. She was given roles that were lesser. She was either the, the fragile butterfly or the dragon woman, or she had to expose too much skin. Yeah. And the Chinese began this backlash of, she is not representing us the way we want to be seen. Right, you know, because the Chinese were seeing how a Chinese woman in America was being seen by Americans. Exactly. I mean, your whole novel speaks to this idea of being the first, right? Like your telling of Anna Mae Wong's story reminds us that sometimes being the first comes with tremendous costs because sometimes being the first means simply being too early. Yes, um, but, you know, being the first also lays the groundwork for the others to follow. And I don't think that Anna Mae Wong at that point thought that she was paving the way for anyone else. She just wanted to be a movie star. She just wanted to be a leading lady, um, you know, to make a good movie. And she was never given the opportunity in which she wanted until, I would say, in America, until Shanghai Express came. Yeah. I don't think she would have ever known, you know, down the line, how she's being put as an example now, until probably in 1961, was it, uh, when Anime Wong received her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I think that's when she started to realize, I did make an impression. Um, but, you know, it has taken this, this long, and it's not until now that someone like Michelle Yeoh has won the first Oscar. Well, after working more than 40 years in film, when you watch Michelle Yeoh receive that award, did part of you think immediately to Anime Wong? Yes. It still feels like it's a new developing thing to watch yes. Asian yeah. actors receive their due in Hollywood. Well, you know, I think the question will be this. Michelle Yeoh has won, now won an Oscar. Will Michelle Yeoh be a leading lady in the next movie? We shall see. Yes. Gail Sukiyama's new book is called The Brightest Star. Thank you so much for this. It was so enjoyable to speak with you. Thank you, Ilsa. It was lovely. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. It's 529 and ahead on All Things Considered, hundreds of Syrian refugees have been forcibly deported out of Lebanon back to their home country, even though they face dangers there. That and more coming up on All Things Considered. Tuning into WBUR is a great way to follow the news. Another great option? checking your inbox. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today gives you a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at wbur.org slash newsletters. It's 64 degrees in Boston with lows in the 50s overnight. Tomorrow starting off with clouds, then becoming sunny and highs in the upper 60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers. 
Rescuers call it a race against time. Experts worldwide are following the search in the Atlantic Ocean for a submersible that was carrying five people to examine the wreckage of the Titanic. It's basically imagining a spacecraft disappeared on the far side of the moon. The latest on the frantic search for the Titan on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House says President Biden is closely monitoring the situation regarding a missing submersible off the Atlantic Ocean. Five people are on board that vessel. It was on a mission to document the wreckage of the Titanic. NPR's Deepa Shivram has this update. Spokesperson for the National Security Council, John Kirby, told reporters that the president wants the Coast Guard to continue participating in rescue efforts and that the U.S. Navy is available to help as well. The U.S. Navy uh, is uh, is on standby should they be needed because they, they have some deep water capabilities that the Coast Guard wouldn't necessarily have. Officials described the search in an active debris field at the bottom of the ocean as very complex. The U.S. Coast Guard says this morning they've searched an area on the ocean surface of 10,000 square miles so far. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. Meanwhile, recovery in Oklahoma slowly continues three days after major storms there blew across the southern plains. At least one death is reported. As Robbie Korth of member station KOSU tells us, hundreds of thousands of utility customers in Tulsa are still without power tonight. No power means no air conditioning in northeast Oklahoma. And that's a problem. The National Weather Service forecasts heat indexes in the area around 100 degrees. In response, the city of Tulsa has opened a smattering of cooling centers across town. Storms rip down power poles and tree limbs that are still scattered about, and crews are working day and night to restore power in the Tulsa metro area. But it could still be a while for many. The local utility provider says a, quote, majority of customers should have their power restored by 5 p.m. on Saturday. For NPR News, I'm Robbie Korth in Oklahoma City. Stocks finish lower on Wall Street today. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Home prices in greater Boston just got more expensive. The median price for a single-family home hit an all-time monthly high in May, at $900,000. That's according to the Greater Boston Association of Realtors, which released its latest housing data today. WBUR's Zeninjor Inwemeka reports. If you're looking to buy a home in Greater Boston, you'll face plenty of competition. There just isn't enough housing stock, and the homes that are available get multiple offers. Allison Sosha is the president of the Greater Boston Association of Realtors. This really comes down to a long-standing production issue. We truly need to be able to build more housing so that we can meet the needs and um, the demand, really, of those buyers who are out there and want to call Greater Boston home. Sosha also says homeowners with low mortgage interest rates are less likely to put their house up for sale. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zeninjor and Wameka. Boston Public Schools officials are hosting a community meeting starting this hour to seek input on a proposal to move the O'Brien School out of Roxbury. 
District leaders say moving O'Brien to West Roxbury will allow the exam school to offer more classes and will open more spots to prospective students. The plan has generated a lot of opposition. Two O'Brien teachers wrote in an open letter last week that the move would reduce student diversity and diminish school culture. A relocation would require school committee approval, and if approved, then the actual move would not be completed for several years. Governor Maura Healey is heading to Ireland. Healey will address the Irish Senate next week on the 30th anniversary of the decriminalization of homosexuality in that country. She'll also host business development meetings with Irish leaders of industries, including technology and clean energy. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Tonight, the Red Sox play the Twins in Minnesota. It's 64 degrees in Boston with some clouds and fog and lows in the mid-50s overnight. Tomorrow, starting off cloudy, then becoming sunny, highs in the upper 60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has wrapped up his visit to China, where he met with President Xi Jinping and other government officials. Among the matters discussed was the self-ruled island of Taiwan, which Beijing claims as its own. In a press conference on Monday, Blinken said he raised concerns about China's actions in the Taiwan Strait, but he reiterated that U.S. policy had not changed. We do not support Taiwan independence. We remain opposed to any unilateral changes to the status quo by either side. We continue to expect the peaceful resolution of cross-strait differences. That status quo is under increasing strain, according to a report from the Bipartisan Independent Task Force on Taiwan from the Council on Foreign Relations. The report is out today, and it emphasizes that the U.S. should take action now to deter future aggression from the Chinese government towards Taiwan. I spoke with two members of the task force, former Deputy Director of National Intelligence, Sue Gordon, and Admiral Mike Mullen, formerly the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I asked them, given the fact that Taiwan has dealt with the threat of a more aggressive China for several years now, what is it about this moment in particular that feels more urgent. I think there are probably three things that particularly are front of mind. One is just China's actions in the region that are aggressive, not just relating to Taiwan, but in the South China Sea. And coupled with that, a general expansion in military capabilities. So Mm -hmm. that's one. Two is Xi Jinping's statements on this topic that cited as something that he believes is unresolved and even putting time frames on which reunification should happen. And then I think the third thing is what I'll call provocative actions specifically in the Strait of Taiwan that could be taken as coercive action to undermine the will of the Taiwan people to have a different view 
of what their position should be. So I think those are three that just really come to mind. Right. You mentioned timeframes that Xi Jinping has declared about possible reunification with Taiwan. When it comes to China's possible reunification by force with Taiwan, what conditions do you think have to be in place before she would decide to go through with that? I really believe that actually this isn't just Xi Jinping. I think any Chinese leader, uh, if they believe that Taiwan was going to become independent and then Xi Jinping himself, he's been very specific when he tells his military to be ready by 2027. When he says that it's critical to what he calls this national rejuvenation and that it can't be passed on from leader to leader as uh, has has been the case uh, in the past. How much do we know about whether the war in Ukraine is giving Xi Jinping any pause about invading or taking Taiwan one day? Do you think it is? I, I have to believe that seeing how much more difficult this has been for Putin has to give Xi pause in terms of how prepared he would be for any forcible military action on the island. And Taiwan is not a simple military target. In fact, it's an incredibly complex, some believe the most complex kind of military operation that he would have to actually execute in order to successfully take Taiwan. Do you think the U.S. should come to Taiwan's direct defense? Should China invade Taiwan one day? I, I'm, you know, that's a real, that's a decision for the president. Actually, well, how president, would you advise the president if you were in the position to do so on that question? No, I actually only did that when I was in a position to do that. Clearly, his advisors are backing off. What what President Biden has said on four separate occasions seem to indicate that he would. His staff has then backed those words down after each one. What we're trying to say in this report is we support the one China policy. Peaceful reunification is still the goal. We just need to make sure, you know, we don't reunify under conflict. Well, let's talk about the one China policy. This policy, which the U.S. adheres to, recognizes the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China and Taiwan as part of China. The policy, it requires what's called strategic ambiguity. But let me ask you, is strategic ambiguity sustainable in the long term? Or do you think the U.S. needs to land on a policy of strategic clarity? Sue, what do you think? We backed away from coming down hard one way or another, instead staying with the one China policy. But here's where I think we did come in terms of area of clarity that is needed. We need to be clear as a nation what our interests are with Taiwan, and we need to have that conversation with the American people. We need to be clear with Taiwan about the actions we're taking with them so that they are more resilient whether that is more weapons or more training. And I think we need to be clear with China that we have not changed the point that we have an opinion about reunification or not, but rather on the point of peaceful. And so if you look through the report, we may not have taken on your question of strategic ambiguity or clarity, but rather clarity in specific areas that advance our interests and make it clear that China does not influence what our interests are. 
Well, one of the biggest takeaways from your report is that you advise that the U.S. should more proactively build up Taiwan's self-defense capabilities. Mm -hmm. But let me ask you, wouldn't that inherently provoke China? I mean, we find ourselves at a time, first of all, the re overall relationship is, is in the worst shape it's been since 1979. Uh, and, uh, and the tensions are way up. That said, at a time when these tensions are way up, it, it becomes that much more difficult to raise uh, our own capabilities, if you will, because that'll increase tensions. And I think that's what we have to do to create the kind of deterrence that has eroded over time. And so that's a necessary Even step. if China sees that as provocative. It, I think people will say that. I think it's the risk that you have to take. The other is to look at it and sort of walk away and let it happen. And I just don't think that's a realistic possibility. But that, I guess, returns me to the previous question. Is the one China policy ultimately sustainable? Are these gestures to be indefinitely quiet on the part of the U.S. towards Taiwan? So I think time will tell. But I think the one China policy is consistent with letting Taiwan and China decide how they want to resolve it. And that's standing by basically our view of what is allowable in terms of hostile actions. And also, you know, you led with Blinken's visit. I think more of those things, harder working diplomacy, more connections, and more people-to-people -people visits. So it's not just seen as a military buildup, although that is always part of deterrence. There are other pieces of it that we think also needed to be strengthened and in which you can be clear about what our interests are in the region without mm -hmm. directly being in confrontation to China. That was former Deputy Director of National Intelligence Sue Gordon and Admiral Mike Mullen, former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They're both a part of the Council on Foreign Relations Taiwan Task Force. Thank you both so much for this really interesting conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Elsa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Veteran singer-songwriter Jenny Lewis just released her fifth solo album. It's called Joy, Y'all. And Marissa LaRusso says the album's title tells you everything you need to know. You, ooh, ooh, ooh. It is an album about choosing joy. Many of the songs are about romance and about heartbreak, but she brings this very loving, kind of like slightly jaded wisdom to all of those experiences. And that is a quality that I have loved about her songwriting for a really long time, even back when she started uh, in the indie rock band Rilo Kylie in the late 90s. I feel like her lyrics have always had this sense that heartbreak happens, but that things will change and it is possible to move on and it is not necessarily worth it to let yourself get stuck. So the title track from Joy All is a song that doesn't necessarily shy away from the things in life that can be traumatic or challenging, but at the same time, Jenny Lewis is not defeated. You know, she tells listeners to follow your joy and she sings, where there is love, there's going to be hate, but we get a little wiser every day. And where there is love, 
song like Puppy and a Truck has that same theme of finding and choosing your own joy on the song she sings about being in her 40s and creating her own kind of stability and independence in her life for herself despite the kind of natural ups and downs of life like a shot of good And I think the sound of a song like Puppy and a Truck, it has this laid back kind of lived in energy. There's acoustic guitar, there's even some pedal steel on this track. And Jenny Lewis recorded Joy All in Nashville with the producer Dave Cobb. He is best known for working with Americana artists like Jason Isbell and Chris Stapleton. And I think that really helped Lewis find and lean into this Americana country-ish singer-songwriter sound that she has been developing for a while and you can really hear it perfected here. That was NPR Music contributor Marissa LaRusso. Jenny Lewis's new album, Joy Y'all, is out now. This is NPR News. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 548 and coming up in a few minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, WBUR's Martha Biebinger has the story on unfinished crafts getting new life. That and more ahead on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in health communication, 100% online. Learn storytelling and media strategies vital to health marketing and communication. Learn more at bu.edu slash met. Join us at City Space this Thursday, June 22nd. Sam Sanders, Saeed Jones, and Zach Stafford take the stage for a live taping of their hit podcast, Vibe Check. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 64 degrees in Boston. Overnight lows will drop into the 50s with some clouds and patchy fog. A mostly cloudy start tomorrow, then becoming sunny and highs tomorrow in the upper 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Elliott Hotel, nestled in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. For business or summer fun, the suites at the Elliott are designed to create memorable experiences. ElliottHotel.com. And Nuance. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. 
From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Lebanon, a tiny country of about 5 million people, hosts over 1.5 million refugees from the war in Syria. But now Lebanon is facing its own economic and political crisis, and anger there towards Syrians has soared. In recent months, security forces have forcibly deported hundreds of refugees back to Syria, which the UN and rights groups say is illegal under international law. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports. We enter a shabby building of cinder block walls and peeling paint to meet a Syrian refugee who's asked me to prevent others from seeing my microphone. In April, he and his family were forcibly deported in the dead of night back to Syria. His wife and baby daughter and son are still there, but he's managed to smuggle himself back into Lebanon. He's in hiding, fearing he'll be sent back, and only agrees to speak on condition that we don't reveal his name or location. Through an interpreter, he tells me how, one morning in April before dawn, he heard a commotion outside. I saw the street was filled with army personnel. I told my wife to wake up the kids. The soldiers went to every apartment, breaking down the doors of those that didn't answer. They sent everyone into the street. We were all in our pajamas. You know, some people went down with their slippers. Uh, They didn't tell us that we were going to be deported, so we left everything and we just went down, carrying my children with me. The men were handcuffed and separated from their wives and daughters. They were loaded onto one army truck and the women and children onto others. They were driven directly to the Syrian border. Seeing the families, many still barely dressed, a Syrian officer was shocked. He said, uh, what happened? And we explained that we were detained like from our beds. Syrian officials held everyone for five days, asking them about their history. Had they ever opposed the Syrian government? The men were in a cell so overcrowded they had to take turns to lie down. The Syrian we spoke with says he was released on the condition that he immediately sign up for military service. Others weren't so lucky. He says three of the deportees were not allowed to go free. One was a defector from the Syrian army. His family were too afraid to be interviewed, but told NPR they've not heard from him since. Ayam Azjoub from Amnesty International says it's illegal to force anyone back to a country where they are in danger or face persecution. So these acts definitely do violate Lebanon's obligations under international law. The United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, says it's aware of 97 raids by the Lebanese army over the last couple of months, with hundreds of Syrians deported. Children have been deported alone without their parents, and parents have been taken without their children. The Lebanese army would not reply to our requests for comment. We did sit down with Ziad Mi'ati, an advisor to the Prime Minister on Syrian refugees. But he repeatedly denied even knowing about the deportations. The question you're asking is not, I cannot answer it personally. I'm not aware of it. You're not aware of the mass deportations of Syrians, despite being the person in charge of this file? I'm sure of the policies. Again, not the services. It's just, it seems like you're kind of scapegoating the, like avoiding their responsibility. I have information on that. I will share it with you. He says, among other things, Lebanon is gathering information on who's an asylum seeker and who's an economic migrant. The short-term strategy is basically to organize the portfolio of Syrian refugees in Lebanon. 
He says in the future the state will work with UNHCR and that no person who might face persecution in Syria will be deported. It's a promise, though, that the Lebanese government has made before. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Beirut. Now, a story about a hand-hooked rug, the woman who couldn't complete it, and a stranger who stepped in to help. They found each other through a program that matches volunteer crafters with projects left unfinished when someone dies or becomes disabled. Martha Biebinger of member station WBUR reports. The small Turkish-style rug is a bright mix of red and blue geometric shapes on a gold background. Donna Savastio spent more than 100 hours following the pattern stamped on linen, using a hook to pull strips of wool through the backing, making loop after loop. You can can sit here for hours if you want to. I mean, it's like, wow, but I love it. Savastio started this rug around the same time she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It maps the progression of her disease. In one section, delicate red scrolls expand to become solid blocks of red. John Shambrun fingers tangled loops along the navy blue border where his wife stopped. She started to get a little bit off the rails and having difficulty pulling the threads up through the top. That was about a year ago. It looked like Sevastio's rug would never be finished. Then Jan Rowetter arrives at the front door. Rowetter is a rug hooker the couple has never met. I've recently lost both my parents and my mom to dementia. She's here to collect and complete Sevastio's rug. And it's something that I would have loved to have uh, been able to do for my mom. And so that's why I'm here. This is this is a godsend. Rowetter moves around Sevastio's craft room, gathering the supplies she'll need. There's one lingering question how to mark the spots where Sevastio's handiwork stops and Rowetter's will begin. The two women open Sevastio's closet in search of options. I'm kind of picking through the clothes here. Okay, here we go. A silky okay. scarf with thin tassels looks promising to Rowetter. Instead of cutting it up, I could um, I could just take some tassels. Rowetter bundles up the rug and heads home. I will be in touch. Thank you so much. All righty, thanks again. Uh, Rowetter and Sevastio found each other through loose ends. The program has matched more than 600 unfinished blankets, sweaters, socks, rugs, and doilies since launching 10 months ago. It's the brainchild of two longtime friends and knitters, Macy Kaplan and Jen Simonic, who were both asked last summer to complete projects for friends who'd lost moms. Sometimes you look around and think, this must be happening somewhere in the world, and and when it's not, you're like, oh, it has to. Now, says Simonic, Loose Ends has 9,100 volunteers in 42 countries. Kaplan and Simonic spend hours of their free time every day filtering data on spreadsheets, looking for the closest person to a submitted project with the right skills and interests. There are some people who are like, give me an 80-foot blanket. And there's some people that like, I don't do anything bigger than a sock. So um, it's me and Macy looking at spreadsheets till we go blind. Here's Macy Kaplan. Watching strangers take care of each other has been really wonderful to watch. A month after picking up the rug, Jan Rowetter is back with a gift-wrapped package. Oh my God, it's gorgeous! Three silvery threads, slim tassels snipped from Donna Savastio's scarf, mark spots in the rug's blue border where Rowetter took over. Every loop was with love and, and thinking of you, thinking of my mom and, and whatnot. 
John Shambrun looks at Rowetter, shaking his head in wonder. This, this is just a purely good thing, especially these days. These days, it's pretty nice to be able to do something pure, pure of the heart, right? Pure of the heart. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from BritBox, with the latest season of Father Brown, Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Tuning into WBUR is a great way to follow the news. And another great option, checking your inbox each weekday morning. WBUR Today gives you a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. You can subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Local election workers in states around the U.S. tell NPR they have felt unsafe doing their jobs. The threat was specifically that the following week that I would not be alive, and then my dog was poisoned. It's Tuesday, June 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Sharon Brody, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, crab and lobster fishing seasons are affected by concerns about whales. The whales can get entangled in the long ropes. A possible new solution? Pop-up fishing gear. Also. Hunter Biden has reached a tentative deal to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges and to enter a court diversion program on a separate weapons charge. At 6.30, it's Marketplace. You'll hear about the phenomenon of so-called blue-collar fashion. It's 6.01. Now, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden's son Hunter will plead guilty to two misdemeanor federal tax charges and avoid a full prosecution on a separate gun charge in a deal with the Justice Department that likely spares him time behind bars if he adheres to certain conditions. Top Republicans are slamming the deal. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says it shows a two-tiered system in the U.S., referring to former President Donald Trump's federal charges over classified documents he kept at his Florida home. If you are the president's leading political opponent, the DOJ tries to literally put you in jail and give you prison time. If you are the president's son, you get a sweetheart deal. 
The White House says the president and the first lady, quote, love their son and support him as he continues to rebuild his life. France is sending a ship equipped with a deep-sea diving vessel to help locate a submersible missing since Sunday that was visiting the wreck of the Titanic. NPR's Eleanor Beersley reports one of the five people on board the missing vessel is a former French Navy officer who's written several books about the doomed ocean liner that went down in the North Atlantic on its maiden voyage in 1912. Former French Navy officer Paul-Henri Narjolet is director of undersea research for the American company RMS Titanic. His family confirmed that he is on board the submersible called the Titan. The 77-year-old's love for the famous shipwreck has earned him the moniker Monsieur Titanic in France. The Titan's dive Sunday was one of many that have been made to the wreck by the company Ocean Gate Expedition since 2021. The undersea exploration company has been chronicling the Titanic's decay as well as the underwater ecosystem that has sprung up around the wreck. Eleanor Beersley, NPR News, Paris. Tens of thousands of residents across East Texas and Louisiana are without power amid a sweltering heat wave. In East Texas, full power restoration is expected to take until the end of the week. The Texas Newsroom's Sarah Ash has more. Temperatures are forecast to break 100 degrees in East Texas, while many people are still without power following a tornado and damaging storms. Mark Nichols is the emergency response coordinator for Upshur County. He said power restoration is expected to take some time because the area is very rural. We've had uh, contract crews, Upshur Rules had contract crews that have come in with, with swamp buggies and different, different types of machinery just to try and access some of the areas that they need to get to. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has issued a disaster declaration for seven counties in the area. County officials have opened cooling centers and are distributing water, ice, and food. I'm Sarah Ash in Austin. Meanwhile, in Jackson, Mississippi, thousands of Entergy customers are still without power from storms last Friday that left widespread damage. The city's mayor is asking for patience as crews work overtime to get everyone back online. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 245, Nasdaq down 22. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. More now on that missing submersible vessel that went missing Sunday while on its way to explore the wreck of the Titanic. The company that runs the trips has a history of facing questions about its equipment safety. WBUR's Walter Rothman reports court filings show a former submarine pilot said he was fired after he raised concerns about the submersible's structural integrity. U.S. Coast Guard officials say they're still searching for the submersible Titan in the waters 900 miles off Cape Cod. There's no word yet on how or why OceanGate's tourist sub went missing. But in a whistleblower lawsuit filed in Seattle federal court, the vessel's former pilot said he raised serious concerns about its safety. OceanGate's former director of marine operations, David Lockridge, said the company did not properly test the submersible's carbon fiber hull. He said when he raised his concerns with the company's executives, he was fired. OceanGate doesn't deny firing Lockridge, but says he breached his contract and shared trade secrets. The parties settled out of court. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. OceanGate did not respond to a request for comment. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is calling on retail chain Target to resume sales of Pride Month merchandise. Target removed some LGBTQ-supportive items after customer backlash this year. Campbell joined more than a dozen other state attorneys general in an open letter to company leaders. They're urging Target to support inclusivity and reject hate-based intimidation and discrimination. 
A film festival celebrating people of color around the world kicked off today in Boston. The Roxbury International Film Festival is in its 25th year. Lisa Simmons is the festival's executive director, and she says the festival has grown over time. More and more people are getting into this space, and more and more people are lifting up these voices that have been covered for so long, for lack of a better word, because you're not going to see these films in the mainstream media. And it's an incredible opportunity to learn about other worlds and other lives. Film screenings are taking place at the Museum of Fine Arts, Northeastern University, and Iberian Hall through June 28th. Here's a reminder to drivers this evening. Northbound lanes in the Tip O'Neill Tunnel will close overnight to accommodate construction. The closure starts at 11 o'clock. The tunnel will reopen at 5 tomorrow morning. Tonight, the Red Sox play the Twins in Minnesota. It is 64 degrees in Boston. Tomorrow at 10.58 a.m., it's the June solstice. On the last spring overnight tonight, lows drop into the 50s. Tomorrow on the first day of summer, a cloudy start, then becoming sunny with temperatures in the upper 60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Donald Trump keeps lying, saying he won the 2020 election, and that has local election officials fearing for their safety. NPR's Chris Arnold has been digging into this and finds election workers all over the country are already facing threats as they brace for 2024. This past midterm election, things were getting pretty intense at the local elections office in Coos County, Oregon. We would have people in this hallway trying to take pictures of everything we're doing with their phones, you know. Dee Dee Murphy, the county clerk at the time, says local people apparently juiced up on misinformation were camped out inside the building day after day. And some of them were very mean. Even though a couple of years before, Trump won in this county with 59 percent of the vote, Murphy and the other election workers say people would still yell in their faces about voter fraud. Some of it was just kind of weird and ridiculous. Had one woman, she said, you're a wicked woman. You're doing awful things in there with the ballots. Over about a month, a security guard stopped people from bringing a total of 20 guns and 60 knives or other weapons inside. And beyond that, some of the altercations were really frightening. 911, what's your emergency? Hi, yes, I work with the Coos County Clerk's Office. I am currently trying to pick up ballots. I have had somebody following me since I left. During the general election last year, a county worker called 911 four times in a single day as he was driving around collecting ballots from drop boxes. He says a woman in a big Jeep Gladiator truck was following him, videotaping him at each drop box. He says she was armed with a handgun on her belt. He doesn't want to use his name, but remembers at one drop box. I see the Jeep Gladiator turn around the corner and drive very quickly down the road and then slam on the brakes and skid to a stop just past me. And then she leaned out of the car and looked at me and yelled, you f***ing traitor. After that, he says the woman tailgated him right on his bumper, driving erratically, sometimes swerving around next to him. I was terrified. The swerving around my car, I was worried that I might not make it off that road. 
More than two years after January 6th, Donald Trump's lie that he won the election is alive and well in a large chunk of the Republican Party. Conspiracy theorists tour the country speaking at events claiming that elections are rigged. And the misinformation about voter fraud is endangering the people whose job it is to conduct elections. NPR obtained contact information for thousands of local election workers and attempted to reach them. Workers and officials across 22 different states told NPR that they've received threats or felt unsafe doing their jobs. I actually bring a weapon with me every day to work. That's Nancy Boren, the director of elections in Columbus, Georgia. We spoke to other election workers in Georgia and Virginia who didn't want to use their names. We have a lot of just general views. You're trying to rig the election. You all be ashamed of yourself. They said that they were coming for my family and somebody would have to pay for this. In this past midterm election, an official in Arizona tells NPR someone threatened to murder him and his children. The FBI arrested the person. Here's another official in a southern state who didn't want to use her name for fear of being further targeted. The threat was specifically that the following week that I would not be alive. My home address was made public online and then my dog was poisoned. The dog barely survived. Of course, there is absolutely no evidence of widespread voter fraud. Lawsuits alleging fraud have been thrown out of court by judges all over the country. These election officials are just trying to do their jobs. The Republicans, Democrats, independents, they're all dealing with this. And it's everyone from top state officials to lower level county workers who handle ballots or even senior citizen volunteers. David Becker heads up the nonprofit Center for Election Innovation and Research. Election officials have been under siege. They've been threatened, abused, and harassed for nearly three years now, and it's getting worse. A recent survey from the nonprofit Brennan Center found that nearly one in three election workers say that they've had to deal with harassment, abuse, or threats, and almost half worry about the safety of their colleagues in future elections. I am very nervous about next year, about the presidential year. I'm nervous about what that's going to look like, too. Back in Coos County, Oregon, the worker who says he was chased in his car and his wife both work in the local elections office. So they've both been dealing with all this. Also, while having their first baby, she was nine months pregnant this past election. During that time, I was scared and I didn't get to feel safe at home either. She also doesn't want to use her name. She says the couple was followed home from work. They say election denier people knocked on the neighbor's doors asking questions about them. Like other election workers that NPR talked to, the couple's now set up a motion-sensitive floodlight and a security camera. Our garbage cans were gone through. There was garbage taken out and mail strewn across their yard. Oh, you mean like in a cop show or something where they like go through the garbage yeah yeah just like that again it was this mix of ridiculousness along with things that were more serious violent sounding social media posts were scary and the couple doesn't think the community here realizes what they've been going through at the elections office it felt like we were under attack constant phone calls and people coming in and yelling at us and we were reaching out to the sheriff's office. So they were walking us to and from the building. And anytime we stepped out of the door, people were filming us. And at one point, as the sheriff was leading us outside, people were recording and laughing. Like, that's so funny that we were so scared that we had the sheriff walk us out. And that was just really crazy. Absolutely inexcusable that that would happen. 
John Sweet is a Coos County commissioner. He's 83 years old, and he's a Republican who does not believe in the voter fraud conspiracy theories. He says it was hard to watch and hear about local people doing all this to county election workers. You know, it's, it's a form of really a bit of mob activity in a way. You know, the, the mob takes on a personality of its own that's probably different than the prevalent personality of the individual members of the mob. I don't think it was unique to our county. It was a a national thing. Everybody remembers the spectacle of the mob at the Capitol on January 6th. But of course, those people came from somewhere and they went back home, where some of them outside of the national spotlight are carrying on the fight. And that's what's been happening here in Coos County. Rod Taylor runs a local surveying supply business. He was arrested for a curfew violation after the riot on January 6th in D.C. I heeded an admonition from General Michael Flynn to go home and make a difference there. And so we started a citizens group here in Coos County called Citizens Restoring Liberty, and we continue to meet weekly. The group is worried about supposed voter fraud and also government regulation of guns, masks, and public schools. Its members have run as candidates for local government and school boards. Taylor himself ran for county commissioner. Here he is speaking ahead of last year's election on a local conservative talk radio show. You know what? I'm proud to have been there on January 6th. Right. Yeah, it was a peaceable gathering on the 6th. And you know what? People were happy, man. It was January 6th was was quite violent. On the talk show, Taylor said he went into the building very briefly, though he says he did not participate in the violence. County officials say it was members of that Citizens Restoring Liberty group who were camped in the hallways of the elections office. But despite their concerns about voter fraud, when the votes were counted, Rod Taylor narrowly won, a result he does not dispute, and he is now a Coos County commissioner. There's no window in here, unfortunately. I wish I had a little bit of outside light. But uh, Taylor is showing me around his new county office. He's wearing a gun on his belt. He's got a scripture reading of the day on his desk, an American flag, a Trump one sign. We wanted to ask Taylor, does he think it's okay that local election workers here in his own county feel threatened just doing their jobs? Did you realize that there are election workers here in the county who fear for their safety because of this? Yeah, of course I'm aware of that. But Taylor says he never threatened election workers himself, and he's not responsible for it. The fact of the matter is, when you've got a large group of people, it's sometimes like herding cats, and you cannot control what individuals do. So, um, unfortunately, we did have some people who I think uh, engaged election staff in unproductive ways that I would not have advocated for, uh, and I still don't condone. My biggest worry is that people aren't going to want to do the job anymore. Over at the elections office, Julie Brecky is the new county clerk. She's trying to figure out how to avoid a repeat of last year in the upcoming presidential race. Already, one election worker has resigned. It's an important job, and the people that work in this office take it very seriously, and they like their job. And if they're harassed constantly and made to look like villains, then it Eventually, that weighs on people. I don't want to lose good people over harassment based on misinformation. For their part, law enforcement officials say it can be difficult to intervene. 
911. What's your emergency? This is Coos County with a transfer. This is the, the election worker who says he was chased while collecting ballots says he was told by police that since no officers saw this person driving erratically, there was nothing they could do. They have tried to run me off the road. I'm a little scared. Okay. The county sheriff, Gabe Fabrizio, says there were also complaints from voters who felt harassed or threatened at drop boxes. But he says nothing rose to the level that law enforcement decided that they could do much about. We want to make sure that everybody's First Amendment rights, their freedom of speech is protected. So uh, threats we take definitely seriously and we'll go investigate them. And, but at the same time, you got to balance that off of people can say whatever they want. Around the country, people are trying to find solutions. Some states are passing laws to try to help. Right now, Donald Trump, the election denialist in chief, is the GOP frontrunner in the next presidential election. But that's more than a year away. So state, federal and local governments do have time to try to come up with ways to lower the temperature and keep election workers safe if they don't wait till the last minute. Chris Arnold, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 618. And start your day with WBUR tomorrow morning for the latest on the missing submersible and the story on what's changed in the years since the Supreme Court entered, ended the federal right to abortion. When you wake up, tell your smart speaker to play WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Refuge Point. Finding lasting solutions for refugees so they can thrive. This World Refugee Day, learn how you can help at refugepoint.org slash WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks closed down today. The day the Dow ended the day down about three quarters of a percent. The Nasdaq down 0.16. S&P 500 down nearly half a percent. Coming up on Marketplace at 630 the vast majority of new housing involves high-end options. You'll look into why that's the case and what it would take to create sufficient affordable housing. Also, the Mississippi River has become a major tourist destination, but climate change has brought floods that threaten river towns. You'll hear about the investments that are helping protect the river's wetlands. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And BU College of Fine Arts. Earn your graduate degree at a tight-knit arts community in a vibrant university. BU.edu slash CFA slash grad. It is 64 degrees in Boston at 620. Mostly cloudy tonight, some fog around, lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy start, then becoming sunny and highs reaching the upper 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Native Plant Trusts, Garden in the Woods in Framingham, offering pollinator-friendly plants for sustainable gardens, grown from seeds without pesticides. NativePlantTrust.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. 
President Joe Biden's surviving son, Hunter, has reached a tentative plea deal with federal prosecutors. That's according to court papers. Under the agreement, Hunter Biden will plead guilty to two tax crimes and admit he lied on his application to obtain a gun. And this legal situation is, of course, happening against a very political backdrop. Joining us now to discuss all of this is NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson. Hey, Carrie. Hi there. Hey, Carrie, to get us started, can you just catch us up to the facts of this case? The U.S. attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, has has been investigating Hunter Biden since 2018. And the current attorney general, Merrick Garland, gave him full authority to make decisions, including charging decisions. These court papers say Hunter Biden has tentatively agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges, a failure to pay taxes in 2017 and 2018. His representatives say, say that he paid back the IRS what he owed about two years ago. And then separately in the gun case, Hunter Biden will admit he he bought a gun in 2018 while addicted to drugs, which is a federal crime. His lawyer, Chris Clark, says it's his understanding the five-year investigation into Hunter Biden is resolved. And Clark says, I know Hunter believes it's important to take responsibility for these mistakes that he made. During a period of turmoil and addiction in his life, he's looking forward to continuing his recovery and moving forward. Okay, and Carrie, is Hunter Biden facing any jail time here? Well, in the tax case, he faces fines of not more than $25,000 and possible imprisonment for about a year on each charge. But a source tells me the DOJ is going to ask for probation. The judge is not obligated to follow that recommendation, though. And then in the gun case, Hunter Biden has agreed to enter what's known as a diversion program, which means he admits to the facts of the case. And under this kind of program, he's going to agree to stay clean for 24 months, perhaps submit to drug tests and supervision. And if he abides by those conditions for a couple of years, the gun charge will be dropped. But if he fails to follow all those rules, the prosecutors could use his admission against him in court later. And Carrie, what has the reaction been to this news so far? Well, former President Trump, who, of course, is a candidate for the White House again in 2024, responded to the news on his social media platform, talking about the corrupt Biden DOJ just clearing up hundreds of years of criminal liability by giving Hunter Biden a mere traffic ticket. He says our system is broken. But a White House spokesman for the Biden White House says the president and first lady love their son and support him as he continues to rebuild his life. And wanna allies of Hunter Biden say this gun charge is rarely brought against a nonviolent offender, especially after the Supreme Court last year upended the way courts deal with firearm restrictions. And the Biden allies also say these tax charges are rare, too, for someone like Hunter Biden, who paid back the money eventually. Mm. Okay, and Carrie, news of this plea deal comes as Republicans on Capitol Hill are intensifying their investigations into President Biden's family. How will this case affect what's happening at the Capitol? The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, and the chairman of the Government Oversight Committee, James Comer, say they're going to go full speed ahead with their investigations of the Biden family. And it's not clear if the Justice Department is actually done investigating Hunter Biden. David Weiss, the U.S. attorney in Delaware, who's a holdover from the Trump administration, says in a news release that his investigation is also ongoing. NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you, as always. My pleasure. A federal judge sided with the shellfish industry on Friday over rules designed to protect endangered whales. On both the east and west coasts, regulators have been closing fishing seasons to prevent whales from getting injured by equipment. Now, a new solution could help solve this 
pop-up fishing gear. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk has the story. Dungeness crab season is normally still open this time of year off San Francisco, but no one is fishing for crab right now, except for Brand Little. So what we're doing here is we're selling some live Dungeness crabs. Little has a big tank full of live crabs on the deck of his boat at San Francisco's Fisherman's Wharf. Customers are walking up to buy them directly. We're the only boat right now. Crab season was shut down two months early because humpback whales are migrating on the California coast. Crab fishermen use large round traps, or pots as they're called, that sit at the bottom of the ocean. They have a rope that goes hundreds of feet up to the surface. Whales can get entangled in that rope, which can injure or even kill them. We've been tossing around several ideas on what we could do different. Um, One of the ideas was pop-up gear. Pop-up gear is a lot like it sounds. The rope and buoy are coiled up at the bottom of the ocean and kept down there until they pop up. We press a button and an acoustic signal triggers a release that allows that buoy to come up and then we can pull it back. So rather than just sitting out there day and night, it's stored safely on the ocean floor and retrieved when we need it. Little is part of a state experiment to try out this fishing gear to see what is and isn't working. For me, it's adapt or die. You know, you got to roll with the punches. This problem isn't going away without changing the way we do stuff. But that opinion is not popular with other fishermen. (laughs) Yeah, I get a lot of flack. I get a lot of flack. There's a lot of guys really upset with me for doing this. That's because few fishermen are even willing to test the gear that manufacturers and regulators are loaning out. As much as I'd like to say, yeah, I'd like to see this all happen right away, I have to protect the industry. Dick Ogg is a crab fisherman just north of San Francisco in Bodega Bay. When I talked to him at the end of December, he was constantly checking his phone. Each other's gear all the time. So um, let me check this because this could be. He was waiting to hear if crab season would finally be opened after more than a month of delay. You know, the fishermen are under a lot of stress. Og has also tested pop-up fishing gear and says the technology works in theory. But some fishermen won't test it because they don't want regulators thinking they're okay with it. It's slower than traditional gear, and crab fishermen work with hundreds of traps. So economically, you can't say, no, it takes you a minute longer. If I do one more minute on my pot allocation, that's 5.8 hours a day. Pop-up gear also costs from several hundred to several thousand dollars per trap. That's a concern on the East Coast, too, in the lobster fishery. Patrice McCarran is policy director of the Maine Lobstermen's Association. If we bring in a capital-intensive model, we know our small boats don't have that sort of operating capital. And, you know, there's there's a very, very strong concern that we're, we're, we're going to lose them. There's not going to be a place for them. McCarran says fishermen want assurances from regulators that the gear will be rolled out in a way that protects all fishermen. The urgency to figure this out is even higher on the East Coast because of the North Atlantic right whale. Lobster season has been limited there because the whales are at risk of extinction. There's only about 340 of them left. How do we fix this problem? Mark Baumgartner is a senior scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, who is working with fishermen and gear makers to help improve the technology. I think this on-demand system, this ropeless fishing, is a very human way to tackle the problem because it's technology. What we're good at is coming up with technology to solve problems. He says a key step will come later this year, when the federal government starts working on standards for manufacturers making pop-up gear. The Biden administration is putting an extra $27 million towards the effort in the hope of making this technology something the fishing industries on both coasts will be more open to. Lauren Summer, NPR News. 
This is NPR News. Thanks for wrapping up the last full day of spring with us here on 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. And wake up with WBUR tomorrow on Morning Edition. You'll catch up with a full range of news. And you'll hear about the middle school winners of NPR's 2023 Student Podcast Challenge. It's easy to stay up to date on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston. And to get first crack at tickets, just sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org newsletters. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, now through July 16th at the Huntington Theater. HuntingtonTheater.org.